So uh, we're trying really hard to be super relevant, culturally relevant in this church. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the, uh, we answered the burning question on your, all your minds, which is, may I eat meat sacrificed to pagan idols? Uh, and the answer was, maybe. And, and this week, uh, we've moved on to an even more culturally relevant topic, which was, must a woman throw a doily on her head before praying or prophesying in church? All right? Burning questions you've all wanted to know. Um, I, I laugh because it's, I actually want to make the opposite point this morning, which is even the stuff in the Bible that seems completely irrelevant to you, if you press into it for a minute, you'll find that it actually has a lot to say. And you just have to weed through some of the word salad we're going to get into this morning. So I'm going to help you with that. I'll help you with the word salad. Hopefully won't make it worse. Hopefully I'll actually clarify things instead of make things more um, unclear. But I want you to just watch and, and, and get this attitude that we need to have, which is when you encounter, I think most people, if we're honest, when we hit this verse, this section of verses in 1 Corinthians, we just sort of shrug our shoulders and go past it like we don't do this in my church so why would I ask the question but what if just for a minute what if we didn't do this in our church and we were wrong what if God actually wanted us to do this how would you feel then because I want well let's do a show of hands um, because some of you youngsters have no idea what I'm talking about uh, how many people in this room ever either wore a head covering in church or saw somebody wear a head covering? Just raise your hand. Yeah, my mom's not here, but she's online, and she, she would raise her hand. All right. So there was a time, I think the last time I saw this was in the, like, maybe mid-'90s. So it's recent history. I mean, I know for everybody in my small group, that's not recent. You were not even born yet. Um, <laughs> Uh, still hurts me when I realize that. But anyway, uh, so there was a time when people were trying to take the Bible really seriously and they encountered this verse and they said, well, it seems to say that we should do this thing and I'm going to take the doily from underneath the lamp on, on my end table and I'm going to put it on my head because that's what this seems to say. And, and their hearts were not, were serious about it. And then some work was done in the 90s, I think, it's really the main thing that happened was archaeological work and some work on the ver words and how they're translated, and people started going, oh, wait a minute, this is not, we don't have to do this anymore, okay? And so I, I joke, this is not a centuries-old controversy, this is a decades-old controversy, all right? And I don't, we're not going to stir that back up, because obviously, you know, we're not wearing head coverings, okay? So if you're wondering, should we wear head coverings or not, the answer is no, I just cheated, you you can all just go home now. But I want to get into why and why, how is this scripture still relevant to us even though we're not following this practice anymore, okay? Um, and I want you to get hold of that. Okay, so a couple of things before we get into the first part of these verses. Um, there's a few dangers in our own thinking that can obscure the meaning of this text because um, there's some trigger words coming up, all right? Um, one is don't look on the past and those that came before you with historical arrogance. Like, I would never have made my, my wife wear a head covering, or I never would have worn a head covering, or I never would have done this 
because that's just, I know better. Now be careful about your arrogance when you look back on people in the past and what they did. Hindsight should make you humble and grateful, not arrogant and judgmental. All right? Number two, try as best you can to leave your soapboxes and your triggers at the door. This is hard to do sometimes because we don't even know that we have these kind of emotional responses until we hit verses like this. Some of you are really worried about the patriarchy. Some of you are really worried about radical feminism. Both of you are going to be upset this morning. All right? So leave all of that aside because you're actually both right, but if you try to load this scripture with that weight, you're actually going to be frustrated because it's not meant to carry that. That's not what Paul is addressing. Is what often happens to us when we encounter verses like this is all of our baggage gets pulled into it and we can't even hear clearly what God is actually saying through the words on the page because our mind is clouded by all this other stuff. And the challenge quite often is to say, okay, God, if, if, if the thing I'm afraid you're saying is actually what you're saying, I'm still going to submit to it. Like I'm going to address my fear that way. By saying if, because we all want the Bible to say certain things, and we don't want it to say other things, right? And when we encounter a verse that kind of seems to threaten that it's going to say something I don't want it to say, we have to challenge our own fear and say, if you say the thing I don't want you to say, I will still submit to it, whatever the issue is. And when you approach it with that attitude, you can just hear what he's saying, all right? So just let God talk about what he wants to talk about. And don't change the subject on them mid-sentence. All right. I will try not to get stuck in the weeds this morning. We're going to get into the weeds if you're freaking out about six pages of notes. Just remember these are my notes first, not yours. <laughs> and sometimes I don't trust my brain to keep things straight. I don't want to confuse myself. I've already confused myself over dates. This is much harder. All right. So that's why there's a lot in here. It will not take three hours to get through. All right. Okay, so let's start with the first few verses, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 6, verses 2 through 6. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. We don't really know what those traditions are, by the way. I'm not going to guess. But, verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. <clears throat> every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Everybody fine with that? Everybody clear? <laughs> Listen, that, that feeling you have right now, what is going on? It's what everyone feels when they first read that, okay? There's obviously some things going on that we don't know about, right? That there's something, like, why do they care? about the head and the hair and the whatever. Like, what is the big deal? And why is Paul giving this, this word salad of a response? Okay, so a couple of things. Uh, verse 3 is where the real trouble starts, okay? It uses the word head metaphorically to describe three different relationships, man, woman, 
or we say wife, husband, and that's all debatable, but man to Christ and Christ to God, that much is pretty clear. What is not immediately clear to the English reader is what exactly the head metaphor says about those three relationships. And that word, the Greek word there is kephale, and it is hotly debated. You can find some really fun stuff in, written in the 90s about that word. And it's actually really fascinating. Where you have to like figure out like what, what is he trying to say, what does it mean. We have some options. I've handily listed them for you here. The first is easy. It's a literal meaning, which is a physical head. Meaning your head as distinguished from the rest of your body. But just think about that word in English and how many different ways we use it in a metaphorical sense. Like Bill, he's the head of marketing. What does that mean? Right? Or the headwaters of the river. Um, he hit the nail on the head. All these different word, ways we use that word, we don't mean a literal physical head, we mean it in some metaphorical sense. And metaphors are tricky, right? All metaphors break down, they stop working at some point, and when you push them too far, they completely fall apart. And so what's he about here? So there's two through four in my notes. If you don't have the notes, by the way, they're on the back table and linked online in the description. So let's talk about metaphorical meanings. One is authority over higher rank of leadership. That's like Bill, the head of marketing, right? This has to do with hierarchical relationships. God is an authority over Christ. Christ is an authority over man. Man is an authority of woman. Is that what he means? Another possible possibility is head as in source, as in creation order. Eve was made from Adam. Christ was sent by God, source. Fourth possibility is preeminent, foremost, or representative. The head is the most visible representation of the whole body. You see it first. So when you think of somebody that you know, you immediately think of their face, their head, right? So that's sometimes what head means. So it's obvious that in several places here, Paul is using it metaphorically. He's also using it literally, and that's part of where the confusion comes in because he jumps back and forth between talking about a literal head like and what's on it, to a metaphorical meaning of the word head. So when you read it like I just read it kind of quickly, you're like, I don't even know what he's saying. But when he's being literal, it's pretty obvious. It's the metaphorical thing that's hard. So generally speaking, authority people, people who like option two, where it's a hierarchical thing, have argued and fought a lot with source people. That's been the main argument. So I think it means source. I think it means authority, and they fight with each other. Um, both tend to leave option four out of the discussion, which I think is actually the best one. But really, they overlap. Think about the way language works. We don't think this way in neat little categories about language. We mix them. Even when I said the word head in English, you imported a lot of thoughts about what that means when we read it. And it really means all of them, and I'm going to show you that as we go through, Okay. They're all layered on top of each other. None of these metaphors by themselves can adequately convey Paul's theology, okay? Not only in verse 3, but in the rest of the section, which is why I'm taking so much time on it first. The question is, in these first few verses, what does head mean? What does Paul mean by the word head, all right? All right, let's look at verses 4 and 5. I was in a mood when I made my notes. Verses 4 through 5 and long-haired hippies in church. Because he doesn't talk about women first, he talks about men. And with them, he says, every man who prays or prophesies, this is verse 4, 
with his head covered dishonors his head. So if, and, and probably what that means is long hair. You can translate that as long flowing hair, long flowing locks, hair that flows down from the head. So does that mean that, you know, everybody who, every male who has long hair should, we're going to cut your hair in the back of the room? I think we've got two. We've got some with no hair. We've got some with more hair. We just all, you know, spread it around, right? What is that about? There's a lot of archaeological evidence that suggests that long hair would have been offensive, or at least very unusual for men. It probably would have been seen as effeminate and as like a sexual advertisement. Now, now that, that makes no sense to you. Like, you, you see a guy with long hair, you don't think he's advertising that he's sexually available to all the other men. I don't think that's what we assume about long hair. I'm saying that just for, for Kenny in the back of the room. He's going to get roasted so hard at lunch today. But, right? It doesn't mean that for us. But at this time, it very clearly did. See, all of a sudden, you have a little more clarity about why Paul would be saying a man that has long hair and, pre and prays and basically does ministry up front where he's visible, that's wrong, Okay? So the first head in that sentence where he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, that head is literal. The second one is metaphorical. Okay. Now let's go to verse 5. It says, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Apparently at this time and place it would have been unthinkable for a woman to shave her head, which it isn't anymore, probably because that was essentially making her genderless. The wearing of a head covering at this time and place denoted respect and respectability. In first century Rome, a veil or hood warned men, often dangerous men, that she was not to be approached or solicited sexually. That was how the culture at the time worked. So to not cover the head was seen as a hint at sexual availability. Very similar to men, but the opposite. So again, the first head in that sentence is literal, the second is metaphorical. So metaphorically speaking, she dishonors herself and her husband, guardian, or family. It's like walking around sort of saying, I'm available. And if she were married, you can imagine how the husband would not be super happy about that, right? This does not mean that women, or long-haired men for that matter, were intentionally trying to advertise their sexual availability at church by not following the dress code. Okay, it's actually more probable, I think, that they were simply enjoying their freedom in Christ. Like all of a sudden, the women are invited in to speak from the front, to pray and to exhort and to prophesy and to get their Bibles out and say things. And so they had kind of gone, everybody had kind of gone too far where they were just like, I don't care what's happening in the world around me. I'm, we're just enjoying and having a great time. And people would come and go, wait a minute, what's happening here? This, like, anything goes? And it was becoming a distraction. This is really probably no different, actually, than the meat sacrifice to idols problem, which is what is most loving, what is most glorifying to God. How can I not put up a barrier to you hearing the gospel? And if, I, if that means I cut my hair or grow my hair longer or whatever it is, I'll do it because I don't want to put up a barrier to the gospel. 
Remember the context. Paul's been trying to shift the conversation from being about personal freedom to relationship responsibility. When he talks about meat sacrificed to idols, he says, you're actually, there's idols or nothing. You can eat this meat, it's fine. But if it offends the conscience of your brother or sister, don't eat it. In fact, you can, he says, I don't eat meat at all for that reason. It's a very similar question here. You may be free to cut your hair as you please, but should you? What's most loving? So it seems that the Corinthians, discovering their freedom in Christ, have moved into kind of anything-goes category. They've confused freedom with license and confused equality with sameness. Look at verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. I think this is sarcasm. The force of it mostly is lost on us because women cut their hair very short and it's not weird. And some people even shave their head and it's not weird. I mean, maybe it is still weird for some people. It does not have the same meaning or importance now, okay? So what remains common, this is a quote from Anthony Sisselton, whose last name I always have a hard time saying without a lisp. But his commentary on this is fantastic. He says, what remains common to verses 4 through 7 is that which distracts attention from God or Christ in public worship by generating a discordant, symbolic clothing code. Nobody knows what semiotic means. Come on, Anthony. Um, a symbolic clothing code or a hairstyle code which inevitably draws attention to the self in a way which makes the person's head a source of shame for his or her own self-respect, the respect of the congregation, and the honor of the Lord who in public worship should be the central focus of thought and attention. That seems to be the issue. So let's move on a little farther out of the weeds. Verses 7 through 12. For a man ought to cover his head since he is the image and glory or reflection in the NRSV of God. But woman is the glory or reflection of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman was from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why, don't get triggered. Just, just give it a verse, okay? Wait and see what happens next. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Don't know what that means. Have no idea. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. So yes, Eve came out of Adam, but you know what happened next? Eve had two sons, so man comes from woman. So there's an interesting interplay between genders here. It's just like the head is the key to the previous verses, the words image and glory are the key here. I noted even in, when I read that that the NRSV translates it a little differently. So image and glory are not the same, and this is, I'm trying to stay out of the weeds here because it's really interesting words, and the overlap between those two words is really interesting. But I think what Paul's doing is here is he's quoting, doing a kind of a loose quote of Genesis 1. So we're going to read Genesis 1, and you're going to go, oh, I see what he's on about, okay? So let's look at that, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Note those two words. 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, that's mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So Paul's careful in Corinthians not to say that woman is the image of man. Who is man and woman an image of, according to Genesis 1? God. We're both equally images of God. But there's, it's not that male is completely by himself the image of God, nor is female by herself the image of God. There's a, there's a, a, it's not good for man to be alone. Isn't that what God said? He created everything as good, 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 and he gets to male, and he goes, hmm, he's kind of quiet. And he says, you know, it's not good for him to be alone. So there's a moment there when Adam is alone. It's just him and God. And Adam is made for a relationship, and he has a relationship with God. And they talk, and they commune back and forth, and they have a relationship. But it's not, it's not the image of God is not complete. And God says, he's not quite reflecting me the way I want him to. So I'm going to make a female. And now you have a three-dimensional relationship going on. You have Adam and Eve relating to each other. And we have Adam relating to God and Eve relating to God and Adam and Eve relating to God together. And now, somehow in that connection, and that, that completes the perspective. You know, guys, when God said it's not good for man to be alone, he's not talking about marriage. He's talking about in your essence, in your humanity, you by yourself are not the complete image of God. You need a woman. And it doesn't mean you've got to get married. Paul makes that clear. This is coming from Paul, who never married. God created humanity for the genders to be equal but distinct. And it's in their equality and distinction that something happens there in their relationships with each other and with God that completes the picture God wanted to paint when he made people. And when you destroy the distinction or the equality... You do harm to the image of God that is in, that God intended in them. And we tend to do both. Our culture tends to either destroy the equality of the genders or destroy the distinction. Right now, it's more about destroying the distinction. But not too long ago, I would, I would say somewhere around the mid-90s, when the doilies came off the heads, that we started to figure out that we had the equality thing wrong. So when Genesis 1 shows us that Paul has in mind a distinction between genders more so than a hierarchy, it becomes much clearer. Then and only then, after, he says, God makes woman, I, I said in my notes, so God makes woman out of man's flesh. Now there is another other besides God. We were made to relate to an other. And that's part of who God is. God relates to another. It's why he made us. It's why there's a trinity. Or it's one of the reasons why there's a trinity. Is there's a re relating in God. The essence of who God is, at least part of it, is he relates to others. And that's why he made us to relate to others. Male alone does not fully image God, nor does female. Equality and image bearing and distinction in gender is essential. I think it's beautiful. 
I think it's absolutely beautiful the way God made us. He did not make any one of us to be enough on our own at our very essence of who we are and why we exist. He made us to need others to complete the picture. So I want to note here, before we get too far into the gender thing, because, you know, that's another hot topic. Um, those distinctions are a moving target, and I want to avoid promoting stupid stereotypes about gender, okay? That's a real mistake. Anytime you start hearing yourself say things like, boys are good at math or not good at math, I don't know what the correct, because I was terrible at math, I don't know if that was, is the stereotype or not. Boys play in the dirt, girls don't. That stuff is stupid, Okay? It's wrong and it's dumb, okay? What Paul's after here is something more like there needs to be a distinction. It's important. It's not incidental. It is important to you imaging who God is. It's important to, to what humanity is before God and what he designed it to be. So don't mistake equality with sameness, right? That's one of the mistakes our culture makes. Equality and sameness are not the same thing. So short hair on a woman is no longer seen as masculine and long hair on a man is no longer feminine. That's fine. Anyone who rails against that is missing the point. What's important is that the distinctions are important, right, and good. So verse 11 to 12 very obviously makes it clear that while Paul is deriving the basis of his theology from Genesis 1, we should be careful not to push it too far. That's why he says, remember, before you get carried away, yes, woman came from man, but man also came from woman. If it weren't for women, there'd be no men. That's a true statement. Without male, there would be no female. Without female, there'd be no male. All right? Okay, verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel. <laughs> uh, I've been dreading this verse all week. I don't know. A couple of things I'll note, and then we'll just move on. Okay? Um, don't know what the angels thing is. I just think there's a, there's a, in several places in Paul's letters, he says things kind of like this. And it just seems like Paul knows a lot about what's happening, about how things work in the supernatural world with angels and demons and heaven and all of that. And he's just not telling us any details on purpose. It's sort of a conspicuous lack of information. And I think Paul was concerned about us getting too wrapped up in that stuff. So he just doesn't explain it. He'll say things like this and then just move on. So we should just move on, okay? That's how I feel about it. I think it's hilarious that Tertullian was conjecturing about this verse in AD 200. You can read Tertullian going, I don't know what this is about. What's going on? This is like, you know, 200 years after it was written. For example, the word symbol is not there in the Greek at all. That's just your translator trying to help you out. I don't know if it's helping. <laughs> the sentence could also be rendered, that is why a wife ought to have her authority over her head because of the angels. In other words, she ought to be able to choose what she does with her head. That could be also, that's a perfectly good rendering of that verse. I don't know which one it is, okay? You don't have to know everything, and I don't have to know everything, all right? I just raise an eyebrow when anyone uses that verse in an overly authoritarian way as a proof of why they should be able to do it. And I say, I don't know, maybe we should read a couple commentaries because it's not that clear. All right. 
Verses 13 through 16. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? <laughs> I'm going to pull that out just for Kenny. Out of context. Verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Verse 16 is super important. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The most natural reading of that is that Paul is saying, in all the other churches, there are no head coverings. They don't worry about it. And he says, so if, if anybody's contentious about this, if there's a fight, it sounds like there probably was an argument going on about how everybody should be dressing and what their hairstyle should be because some... People were being offended by certain things and certain styles and certain ways of dress, and Paul's trying to navigate all that and kind of give a thing. But he says, you know what, look, after it's all said and done, in verse 16, he says, if it's contentious, if it's divisive, just know that in most of the churches, they're not doing this. <laughs> I love that. Because Paul says, look, I don't care that much. I mean, if you want a, a decision, I'll give you a kind of an answer, sort of. But I don't, it's not that big of a deal. He has a perspective on this that puts it in its correct proportion to other issues. What Paul is most concerned about, you can see in this entire section, if we put all of this in context, is loving each other well and not impeding the gospel. I think about when I was reading this, because I was like, God, how do, how do we respond to this? Because so much of this stuff is like not, like nobody cares anymore what your hair looks like. And I immediately started thinking of our dear friend, Madi Clifford, who was in this church for many years. She died just a few years ago from breast cancer. And she was a missionary to the Islamic people in the Sahari Desert. And the pictures of her that I remember, they're probably on my phone somewhere. I just don't look at them because I'll probably cry. Of her wrapping herself from head to toe to go to these people and live with them in the middle of the desert in little tents. Because it's the only way she could reach them. And she was a very progressive woman on feminist issues. You ever got to talk to her, she'd get pretty fired up about it. But she didn't hesitate to wrap herself from head to toe to go to that culture because that culture wouldn't have been able to listen to her because of what, she, because her head was not covered, so she covered it. And I think that's what Paul is after. It's not a. We missed a point when we start arguing about the the size or shape or whether or not you put a doily on your head or a handkerchief and when you should do it and when you should not do it. If you must do it, you know, when you're in a prayer meeting, but you're not on the stage in front of everybody. That's the kind of arguments we get into. And Paul's going, just be like mighty. Like, have a sense of proportion. And do things that will open up doors to the gospel. And that's what you should... So does God care how you cut your hair? Yes and no. <laughs> we should care. Only because we should ask the question, do the, is just the things I wear and how I dress, is it, does it create an open door for the gospel to go forth to the people I'm called to send it to? Or does it hurt me? Does it help the gospel or does it hurt it? Imagine 
thinking that way instead of what you're free to do. It's hard. It's really, it's really hard. So Paul doesn't care that much to make a rule about it. He never comes down with a rule about it. I don't think it's not worth fighting about. He says what is worth fighting about is, is it most loving? What's most loving for me to do? Who am I called to? Because we're all missionaries. Everybody's a missionary like Marit is. So the question is, what are we called to do and who are we called to do it with? So I'm going to list off some conclusions and then I will pull the ripcord. So despite all the difficulties we've waded through, there are some things that are very clear and very important for us to pay attention to, okay? First, this begs the question again, what freedoms are you unwilling to give up for the cause of the gospel? Like, just think through the things that you enjoy as a male or a female. What are you willing to give up? Third, secondly, this suggests a pretty radical dedication to the spread of the gospel. That's Paul's driving ethic. He's suggesting that even our hairstyles and clothing should reflect that priority. So the question is, does it? He's calling us to an attitude that is willing to compromise anything except the truth to win one to Christ. It's radical. I will compromise anything except the truth for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll give up whatever I need to give up. If that means being poor to reach the poor, I'll be poor. If that means covering myself from head to toe so I can reach somebody in the desert, I'll do it. I'll bow to whoever I have to bow to. I'll shake hands with whoever. I'll go anywhere. I'll sell myself into slavery. I'll do whatever is required except compromise the gospel. I'll do it. That's radical. What are you most known for? What's your reputation amongst the people that know you, including people that know you on social media. What would those people say you're most passionate about? American politics? What issues would they say, would their impression be that you're most concerned about? Is it the spread of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ or is it some other thing? That's the question. I also think that the theme of equal and distinct is immensely important right now. It's absolutely right at the center of so much of what our culture is wrestling with and the church is wrestling with. So I'll say this. To lose gender distinction is to lose a foundation stone of our humanity. It is not just a Christian church issue. It is a humanity issue. To lose gender equality, on the other side, is spiritual abuse. And so we cease to image God in the way he intended it if we lose either one. The church is meant to be different in both respects, which will most certainly confuse the world. They go, I cannot put you in a political category because you defy all of them. Because somehow you manage to treat everybody, male or female, with equality, and at the same time there's clear distinction. The strategy of the enemy, I think, has been for generations to either pit the genders against each other or he tries to eliminate the distinctions altogether. And we need to be wise to both. So why don't we pray?
Why don't we stand up? God, my heart just goes out to um, two groups of people this morning. God, first to, to women that have felt unequal, uncelebrated, even abused, and not treated as equal imagers of you. God, at times... Men have used these verses even to lend your authority to that abuse. God, I, it breaks my heart. So God, I pray that right now you would speak to every woman that's listening to this. And God, that she would hear you say and me say, we need you. We don't need you to do a job or do a task or solve a problem. We need you because we are meant to reflect the glory of God and we cannot do that without you. God, I pray that after it's all said and done that that would be who we are as a church. God, I also pray for those that struggle with gender identity problems. God, where they can't sort out the difference between male and female, and it seems gray and confusing and overlapping, and they're lost in between. They're lost because the culture can't tell them anymore what the difference is. God, I pray that you would rescue them from that confusion. God, that they would be able to find a way to submit to you and what you say about them, who you say they are. That God, that they would find rest and clarity in that. God, the world is just hurling and heaping confusion on little kids even now over this. God, I pray that your love and your mercy would come into that confusion and bring clarity. God, I pray after it's all said and done that this church would be an example of that. Of loving people well who are coming out of the world and all of its confusion and lostness and brokenness. And they would find their true selves in you. God, that you would reshape us, all of us, into who you originally shaped us to be. God, we want to be people that are images of you, who glorify you, who glory in you. So God, help us. This is complicated in the world we live in. God, I pray you'd help us to navigate it. Every one of us will have to navigate this in our lives at some point. Every single one of us. In our jobs, in our own households, in our neighborhoods, 
amongst our friend group, somewhere we're going to have to navigate this. And God, I pray that we would be people that are loving and generous in our hearts towards people. And God, I pray that you would give all of us renewed confidence in your word, that even the hard, confusing stuff is profitable for each of us. God, thank you for the beauty of your word and how it tells us how you made us in a beautiful way. Help us to embrace that. In the name of Jesus, amen.